1: Today, on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear stories about the time the U.S. government banned sliced bread. And would you believe that the state of Oregon once attempted to ban popcorn in movie theaters? And then you'll hear about a shortage of fly swatters, and that's because women were using it to swat away their body fat. I am Steve Silverman, and in a moment, Matt Breen of the Explorers Podcast will be joining me to discuss all those stories, today's retro sponsor, the question of the day, and so much more. All that is coming up next on today's Useless Information Retrocast.
2: Useless information.
1: Now before we get going, I just want to mention this is recorded via Zoom, and there were some minor glitches in the recording, so I do apologize for that. In addition, this retrocast is longer than previous episodes. And while I did edit out about 45 minutes of discussion, I decided to leave a good portion of it in. And that's because I think it'll give you a bit of insight into what Matt and I do to prepare episodes for our podcast. So let's jump right in. So today on the Retrocast, I thought we'd do something a bit different. I have Matt Breen of the Explorers podcast joining me. So welcome to the Retrocast, Matt. Thank you for having me, Steve. Yeah. Now, uh, I guess we've known each other, what, about eight months or so now?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. About that.
1: Correct. I was on Reddit for years, but I hadn't used it. And I just started... Going into the podcasting groups, and I noticed you were giving your two cents to some newbie on podcasting, and I I I totally agreed with you on something, and uh, I realized we were on the same exact network, and that's basically how we started talking to each other. Now I should mention you're not on the same network anymore. You've gone on to uh, Green of Pastures. You're on uh, Airwave Media, uh, which uh, I don't know if you know the answer to this. Uh, I noticed when we got our when you got the initial email and I got one also that the guy was located at, that Airwave is located at Warner Brothers in Burbank, but are they part of Warner Brothers or just located there? Do you know?
0: I do not know the answer. And uh, I wondered that exact thing. My guess is that they, they have some sort of uh, relationship with them, but I can't tell you the answer.
1: But anyway, so uh, we'll talk about that in a bit, uh, but let's dive right into today's stories, okay? Sounds good. So inflation has been in the news quite a bit lately, as everybody knows. Um, And as the world emerges from the dark days of the pandemic, we're experiencing a period of high demand and low supply. And, of course, the war in Ukraine has only exasperated the situation, and it seems as if prices of just about everything are skyrocketing. I'm sure you've noticed that, Matt, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, every time I go to the grocery store. Yet as bad as things seem today, they don't compare with what happened during World War II, Here in the United States during World War II, the need for the military came first, which included not just the raw materials to make the tanks, the ships, and weaponry, and so on, but also the supplies needed to feed our troops. The net result was this created a shortage of nearly everything. That included gasoline, automobiles, sugar, dairy, meat, and so on. And as we're experiencing right now, shortages typically lead to high inflation. To avoid this, the federal government introduced ration stamps. So to make a purchase, a consumer needed to hand over both the cash and the required ration points. I did look this up. For example, a can of corn would require 14 points, while a can of peaches was 21 points. This not only reduced demand, but also assured more equitable distribution of goods. Now, coupled with the rationing program was a series of price controls in which the government would cap the maximum price could be charged for a product, of course, with the goal of keeping inflation under control. Of course, this is all an oversimplification of the steps that were taken, but I thought we'd take a look at one product that had been subject to price controls. That is bread. As we all know, nearly all bread is wheat-based. And by the way, have you ever eaten gluten-free bread? Yes, I have had gluten-free bread. Yeah, my wife was gluten-free for about a year and I was making them all the time, but it just isn't quite right. I mean, I had some pretty good recipes, but it just wasn't quite right. No, (laughs) no, it's not quite right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, although I will say a woman I work with was gluten-free and she bought her bread at Aldi's. And I was actually surprised how good it had gotten over the years. So they're getting there. Anyway, back to the story. During World War II, the demand for wheat began to increase. And because so many men were overseas fighting the war, there were fewer people to harvest the fields. That meant that the price of wheat began to rise, which resulted in a 10% increase in the price of flour from the mill, which translated into a higher cost for the baker. The net result would be that the baker would have to charge more for a loaf of bread, but they couldn't because the federal government had already placed a cap on bread prices. This basically left the bigwigs in Washington with two options. First, they could simply raise the price the baker could charge a consumer for the loaf of bread, which would cause the cost of living to increase. But a second option was to have the bakers absorb the added cost, but they were already operating on razor-thin margins. Well, when stuck between a rock and a hard place, you can count on the federal government to come up with a solution that wouldn't be beneficial to either the consumer or the bakers. On Tuesday, December 29, 1942, they announced that beginning on January eighteenth, bakers would no longer be able to slice bread. Their thinking was that the bakeries could save a lot of money on both machinery and manpower in doing so. That's because the thin blades used in slicing the bread were costly to purchase, had a limited lifespan, required constant resharpening and used steel that was essential to the war effort. In addition, each sliced loaf required two sheets of wax paper to keep it fresh, while an unsliced loaf only required one. One baker commented, quote, not slicing the bread will save something. He continued, it will eliminate one operation, cut the paper consumption in half, and reduce labor costs a little. But all these things together won't go far enough toward making up the increase in flour prices. And that's the end of the quote. The net effect of all this was that it was now up to the homemaker to slice the bread. And this had unintended consequences. First, there was far more waste by cutting the bread at home. The bakery could slice it far more efficiently. Next, most people didn't own a bread knife, so they had to go out and purchase one. This resulted in a surge in bread knife sales, which of course were manufactured from much-needed steel, which ultimately caused the price of knives to surge. Once the slicing ban went into effect, bakeries noticed a drop in bread sales. Plus, restaurants were complaining because they now needed to hire more staff to slice the bread. While they weren't banned from using machinery to slice the bread, the war shortages made it impossible to purchase such machinery. The ban had only been in effect for 47 days when, on March 6, 1943, Secretary of Agriculture Claude Wickard announced that he was rescinding it. Quote, The order prohibiting the slicing of bread was aimed at affecting economies in the manufacture of bread and in the use of paper, he continued. Our experience with the order, however, leads us to believe that the savings are not as much as we'd expected, and the War Production Board tells us that sufficient wax paper to wrap sliced bread for four months is in the hands of paper processors and the baking industry. Three days later, full-page advertisements were run by the makers of Wonder Bread in newspapers all across the country, announcing, Wonder Bread brings you sliced bread today. Now, Matt, did you eat Wonder Bread when you were growing up?
0: We did sometimes, but uh, I came from a big family, and so my mom tended to do the old whatever's cheapest uh, gets on our table kind of thing.
1: How many kids were in your family?
0: We had six of
1: us, five boys and a girl. Wow. My wife comes from one of seven. Uh, in my family, there was never more than two. Although my uh, one uncle was married twice. So he had three kids, but in general, two was the limit in my family. I don't know why that is. Anyway, uh, I actually loved Wonder Bread. I don't know why. I have to admit until they went bankrupt around the last recession, I ate it all the time. And that kind of forced me to stop.
0: I've always been a bread guy. Loved it. you know, Sandwiches, anything. I, I still am. And I To my detriment, probably eating too much bread still. But uh, um, I still love my bread.
1: Yeah, same here. Now, I do have an old radio commercial for Wonder Bread that I will play in a moment. But before I do that, it reminded me of a story. And this really has nothing to do with bread. But how is that kind of law of unintended consequences? And as you know, as a teacher uh, for 30 years, and in New York State, we have these uh, state exams, their final exams called Regents exams. And the state, of course, prints them. And in science, they have what are called reference tables. They have all the charts and tables and, you know, numbers and stuff in that. And the state used to provide them with the exams. But then in the last recession, 2008, they needed to cut money. So they decided we're not going to print the uh, reference tables anymore. We'll let the local schools do that. So now the local schools, of course, are printing them on their photocopy machines, which is far more expensive to do. But, you know, they saved all that money. But, net effect, at least in my mind, just, the taxpayers are still paying, whether it's you know on the state level or the local level. And it was costing them a lot more money, but of course, the state saved money that way.
0: Just a story that popped into my head while I was uh, writing this. I think that we get far too many people that look at what is going to change tomorrow by making a decision, and they really don't think it through. It's extraordinary how many times that happens from... The simplest business decisions to very complex stuff, and it's it's still to this day. And sometimes it's pretty obvious the decision of the decision, but you're amazed that uh, uh, the committee or whoever could not see that. But you know, sometimes I guess it works. But uh, oftentimes they they're happy to uh, report at the quarterly meeting that they've lowered the price, but uh, it's messed up uh, other people.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I I wouldn't say it's a daily occurrence, but if you read a lot of things in the news, or I mean, I'm an avid news reader, I just read the news all the time. And uh, sometimes I just think that's really, you know, short sighted, you you really should have thought that through. And of course, a few years later, exactly what I I wouldn't say I'm always right. But uh, sometimes it really does come true, you know. Okay, so let me uh, play that uh, commercial for Wonder Bread for you.
2: Colonel Roscoe Turner, Skyblazers calling Colonel Roscoe Turner at Flight Headquarters. This is Flight Headquarters, Colonel Roscoe Turner speaking. Skyblazers, coast to coast, stand by. Skyblazers, stand by. The makers of Wonder Bread present Skyblazers, based on the adventures of the men and women who pioneered new trails in the skies that we might fly. In just a moment, we shall transfer you to Colonel Roscoe Turner at Flight Headquarters. But first, Mother's, your own nearby food store has everything you want for a wonderful Fourth of July picnic. Yes, cheese, and peanut butter, eggs for hard boiling or salad, pickles and potato chips. And say, just tell me, what could be more fun for Dad, the children and yourself than a wonderful outing in the country? All you need is a nearby field for baseball, a brook for wading, and green shady trees to spread your lunch on. And what a lunch you'll have if you do as good homemakers everywhere are doing and make your sandwiches with delicious, slow-baked Wonder Bread. For Wonder Bread stays fresh so much longer. That's because Wonder Bread is actually slow-baked. Every single loaf is handled with a mother's care, right from the original mixing to the final wrapping. A loaf of Wonder Bread takes more than 10 full hours to make its trip to our spotless bakery stays in temperature-controlled ovens 13% longer than many ordinary breads. And this marvelous slow baking helps to keep each slice moist and tender, tempting and delicious, just right for the best Fourth of July sandwiches mother knows how to make. Ask your your grocer for Wonder Bread today. It's the bread he himself probably prefers to any other sold in his food store. Yes, according to recent extensive surveys, More grocers say their wives serve slow-baked Wonder Bread in their homes as those who mention any other bread. And the grocer knows which is the one best, the freshest loaf in his food store. Look for the wrapper decorated with the red, yellow, and blue balloons. Wonder Bread, each loaf, slow-baked for lasting freshness. Now take it away, Colonel Roscoe Turner at Flight Headquarters. You're on the air.
1: Contact. Contact. That commercial for Wonder Bread is from the June 29th, 1940 broadcast of Sky Blazers. It's a show that ran on the CBS radio network from December 9th, 1939 through August 31st of 1940. Each episode told the story of aviation heroes, both in the military and civilian life. 38 different episodes were produced, while only four are still known to be in existence. This particular episode, which focused on the true life story of Jack Knight, a pioneer in air aviation, was episode number 30. As for Wonder Bread, the Taggart Baking Company of Indianapolis, Indiana, first introduced the product to their local market before going national the following year. The first ad ran in the Indianapolis News on May 17th of 1921 and simply said, wonder in big letters. That's it, I actually have a copy of the ad. It's uh, pretty interesting. The next day, the ad said a bit more, wonder with a question mark, how often do you use the word every day? Check yourself. And then each day, the ads would get a little bit longer while still not revealing what the Wonder product was. Finally, on Saturday, May 21st of 1921, the world would learn that Wonder was Taggart's Wonder Bread. Wonder Bread had a lot of firsts. It was the first national brand of bread to be sliced, the first to weigh in a whopping 1.5 pounds, that's 0.68 kilograms, And all breads were one pound up till then, and it was the first to have sell-by dates and the first to print nutritional information on its packaging. The name was the brainchild of Taggart's vice president for merchandising development, Elmer Klein. He'd attended the international balloon race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and he was filled with wonder seeing the colorful balloons in the sky. And that's why Wonder Bread to this day features the iconic red, yellow, and blue balloons on its packaging. Four years after the product was launched, Taggart was purchased by Continental Baking. Continental, in turn, was purchased by Interstate Bakeries in 1994, but went bankrupt in 2004. And everyone thought that was the end of Wonder Bread, but it is now manufactured by Flower Foods. And That's not a company I'd ever heard of. But anyway, they're the makers of Dave's Killer Bread, Tasty Cake, Nature's Own, and a number of other brands.
0: So Matt, why don't you read the next one? On April 6, 1949, a bill was introduced in the Oregon State Senate that called for the banning of popcorn and peanuts in movie theaters. The measure was sponsored by nine state senators and was prepared by Senator Dean Walker, a Republican from the City of Independence. In part, the anti-noise bill stated that public places of entertainment, commonly known as moving picture theaters, constituted instrumentality of great and effective public influence. Not only would the selling of popcorn and peanuts be prohibited under the new law, it also required that any customer caught consuming these foods during the showing of a film would be, quote, subject to immediate ejection therefrom, end quote. But he would have his admission ticket refunded. Should a theater operator knowingly allow a patron to eat those treats during a film, the business would be found guilty of a misdemeanor and fined $100, which is nearly $1,200 in today's money, or face up to 30 days in jail. Should you happen to be a patron who paid for the privilege of viewing and hearing the program and spotted someone eating popcorn or peanuts, you could be a snitch and the ticket office would be required to give you three times the ticket price back. Should the theater fail to do so, you could go to court to get your money. Two days after the anti-popcorn bill had been introduced, the senators arrived on the morning of April 8th to find a bag of buttered popcorn on every desk of the Senate chamber. The next day, the Statesman Journal ran a large photograph of 11 senators, including the nine who had sponsored the bill, eating the popcorn. Clearly, they thought it was one big joke. But the theater operators were not laughing. Popcorn, peanuts, and the entire concession stand was a big part of their business. They were determined to stop this bill from ever becoming law a hearing on the issue before the Committee on Public Housing and Institutions was scheduled for 8 p.m. on April 11th in Room 309 of the Oregon State House. Turnout was heavy, though only two of the senators on the committee bothered to attend. Most of those in attendance were either theater operators, members of the press, or other elected officials. Senator Jack Bain, a Democrat who wasn't part of the committee, protested the bill by appearing in a vendor's white coat and hat and handing out free popcorn to everyone. Ted R. Gamble, the representative of the theater owners, did most of the speaking. It's socialism, he stated. It infringes upon human rights. It's the most ridiculous piece of legislation I've ever seen. It's a clumsy piece of legislation. Gamble added The theaters are only filled four hours a week, so people don't have to sit next to popcorn eaters. The public runs our business. 75% of our patrons eat and want popcorn. If people are so persnickety they don't like popcorn theaters, they can stay home. Most theaters sell popcorn in noiseless boxes anyway. The bill is un-American. Senator Bain was offended by Gamble's comments and announced he was changing his position on the bill. Gamble explained that he was so forceful simply because he was fighting for the survival of the theaters. Meanwhile, the noise from all the free popcorn was creating a distraction, basically proving the need for the bill that was being debated. Democratic Senator Thomas R. Mahoney then blurted out that the popcorn eaters were quote, just like the morons in the movies, let them get out with the hogs and eat in the barnyard, end quote. The crowd let out a big boo while Gamble told the committee that I don't classify either Republicans or Democrats as hogs and theater goers as morons. Several witnesses then spoke. This included theater owner Van Driesch, who said, and if popcorn eating is the pursuit of happiness, let them go to it. There was only one witness in favor of the bill, he was Don Madison of Salem, who told the senators that he no longer attended the movies because of the popcorn. So is it illegal to eat popcorn or peanuts in a theater? Well, no. Several days later, it was announced that the bill would die in committee.
1: So I have to say, uh, as I was doing the research on this, I had a whole bunch of articles on this. I couldn't tell if it really was introduced as a joke or not. At first, it, it was like, you know if you read the initial articles it was very serious these guys introduced this they want to get rid of popcorn and peanuts in the theaters so it was making too much noise but i think then as it took on national headlines and people were making fun of them i think that's when they changed it to say so, no it's a joke you know you know it's it's hard to know how serious some of our elected officials are when they introduce these bills
0: you know to me the the, the biggest thing was was noise it was i was like why is this being done it's an anti noise thing and i'm like going Popcorn isn't that noisy. I mean, I I get it that some people can be bad, but to me, the worst thing is, is like nowadays the boxes with the plastic wrapping and, you know, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> that's far worse than because uh, I used to always tell my son um, when he was younger, I say, okay, unwrap and open your box of your, you know, he loved gummies and he loves those kind of things. And open it now before the movie starts. So you're not like crinkling uh, that thing up, but popcorn, whatever, that's fine. And and so.
1: Yeah, I honestly can't. I mean, I don't, my wife and I don't really buy it. Actually, it's really expensive and we're quite frugal. Um, But as soon as you go into the theater, you open the door and the smell of the buttered popcorn, it it just kind of goes with the theater. You know, I can't imagine not having it. In one of the articles, I didn't put this into the story, but uh, in one of the articles, it's talking about, well, what's next? We're going to have a ban on celery and carrots and all those other things, you know, that people crunch on.
0: Um, a- as a note, I had uh, one guy I work with, someone complained about him because he would eat his carrots at his cubicle. And it would ma- it would make, you know, crunch, crunch, crunch and so someone complained about him eating his carrots so it's it's it, that was a workplace situation but yeah so i guess we could have a ban on carrots <laughs> uh, I, I think some people don't like their
1: veggies that would be that would go over pretty well so okay so next story i have is a kind of an unusual one during the evening of february 6 1952 mrs helen block began driving from her home at 17 Rhodes avenue in akron ohio to detroit michigan which is about 200 miles or 320 kilometers away. That is a long drive, even in normal conditions, but Mrs. Block opted to make the trip in the middle of a snowstorm. You gotta wonder what she was thinking here. Due to the treacherous conditions, she turned right off West Market Street and she lost her way. And she had only lived in Akron for about two months and didn't know the roads very well, so she drove around aimlessly until a car got stuck in the snow. Mrs. Block had no choice but to abandon the car and, of course, hoof it. She found her way to the nearest highway where she was picked up by a passing motorist who later dropped her off at a gas station. When she went out the next day to retrieve the car, she had no clue where she had left it. Nor did she know the name of that kind motorist or the location of that gas station. After days of searching for the car, an appeal was made to the public in an eight-paragraph article that appeared on the front page of the February 14, 1952 publication of the Akron Beacon Journal. One paragraph read, quote, has anyone seen this car? It's Austrian-made. It's a Vauxhall Velux, six-cylinder, four-door sedan, black with red leather upholstery. She and her husband brought it to this country from Europe last October. Little side note, this is, you know, I'm thinking sports sedan, something really cool looking, but it actually looked just like your boring 1950s, you know, Detroit sedan, you know, fins and all, but it's kind of shrunken in size. And of course, the most obvious thing about it, it's coming from Europe, the steering wheel's on the other side of the car, you know? The story continues. It bears U.S. Armed Forces plate C 6555, and in the rear seat were Ohio plates A 1478 T. Mrs. Block has enlisted police and sheriff's deputies in the hunt. Two days later, the paper reported the car had been located. It had been found just two blocks off of West Market Street in the Fairlawn District, just as Mrs. Block had suggested. Yet no one could find it, and the reason was really simple. It had been towed to a West Akron garage, which Mrs. Block later went to and retrieved the car. Now, this, this story just kind of reminded me coming out of the mall and you're like, hey, where did I put my car? You lose your sense of direction sometimes. It, I don't know if that ever happened to you.
0: Oh, absolutely. But I have the best story for that. My dad, when, he was, uh, when I was a kid, uh, went to the grocery store, came out, got into the car, drove home, yet it was the wrong car <laughs> it was the same model and everything and the keys actually worked for it and he didn't realize he had driven home the wrong car until he got home
1: <laughs> yeah I, i've actually uh i mean i have tens of thousands of these stories you know little little tidbits um i actually just started a little spreadsheet to keep track of them i only have about 900 stories in there but i have tons and tons of others that someday i'll get in there and several times i've come across years ago You know, you just stick the key and if it started the engine off, you'd go, you know,
0: my thing about this story, Steve, that I just love is, was the news really, really that bad that they devoted front page story to this, the Akron Beacon Journal or whatever. I love the concept of a newspaper thinking that this is the most important thing, the woman finding her car.
1: You know, I, I actually love these little stories. Um, you know, Generally, I'll look at hundreds and hundreds of these before I find one that I can actually do some research on and take it further. And that'll maybe become a podcast at some point. But the Akron Beacon Journal, at least in certain time periods, every day they'd have one of these quirky stories on the front. Usually it's only a paragraph or two. This one happened to be exceptionally long. And I think that's because it happened in Akron, you know, would know, normally be picked up you know, off the newsfeed and, and they just get a paragraph or two. Actually, you know, as you were talking about your, your dad driving off the wrong car, what I do uh, this time of the year, because I, I actually go kayaking at a nearby lake a lot, I have a kayak rack on the top of the car. Of course, I don't carry the kayak with me all the time. When I get home, I just take it off. But I leave the rack up and it's foldable down, but I leave it pointed straight up. So when I come out of a store, I can look halfway across the lot and see, you know, my car just stands out of the crowd, you know.
0: And, and you have to remember, they didn't have the nice little automatic beeping sounds too that we do nowadays where you can just right. start hitting your door lock and it'll beep at you so you can kind of hunt it down that way.
1: Although I did read a few weeks ago, and I, I tried this out just to see if it works. In Google Maps, you can actually set where your car is. It probably won't work in a parking lot, but you know, if you're in a city and you're parked four blocks away, you just set this is where my car is, and then you can come back later and find it. Nice. nice. Yeah, technology. So Matt, one thing I do in every retrocast is I ask what's called the question of the day. So you're ready to test your knowledge? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. Uh, The question is, what is the most consumed natural resource on earth besides water? Of course, we use lots and lots of water, but what what would come in second place, the most consumed natural resource? Now, I'm sure some things are going through your head, so don't say anything. i will let you ponder over that a bit and we'll discuss it at the end of the podcast. Okay. Sounds good. this is probably a good place to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. But when we return, you will hear more fascinating true stories, the answer to the question of the day, which you just heard.
3: Plus, Matt will tell you a little bit about his show, The Explorers Podcast. See you on the flip side. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
2: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
1: Welcome back. Uh, I thought before we dive into more stories, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Explorers Podcast?
0: I've been doing The Explorers Podcast for almost six years now. And uh, it is a very nerdy, detail-oriented show about famous explorers and explorations. And we cover the gamut of stuff, everything from ancient history and all the way up to, to modern day things like the Apollo astronauts and, and the first landing on the moon and everything in between. And, uh, probably the biggest era is going to be your typical age of discovery though. You know, your Columbus and Magellans and things like that. And what we do is we basically do deep dives into the explorations of these, um, people, mostly men, but, uh, but, uh, some women. And, uh, it's just a labor of love. Uh, it's something I always loved. And, uh, It's just a blast.
1: Yeah. I have to say, uh, you know, when I first started listening to your podcast, I should say my favorite one was on Ernest Shackleton. I really love that. And that's actually the longest uh, series you ever did, right? It was 11 parts, I think.
0: Correct. Yeah. 11 parts and almost in about 10 hours.
1: When I first started listening, I love the story on Ernest Shackleton. I've never done it on my podcast simply because it's too well known. At least I felt it was too well known for what I do. And I was amazed how much I learned from it. And at first I was like, 11 parts, this is going to be a bear. You know, I wasn't sure I really wanted to devote the time. But once I started listening, I was addicted. I mean, I, I couldn't wait to get to the next episode and the next episode and the next episode. I just cannot tell you how much I learned from the podcast. When I was all done with that series, you know, the 11-part the, the series on Ernest Shackleton, I just thought this is a real, this would be a really good uh, audio book. You know, your narration was excellent, very well, you know, really detailed, as you said, and uh, it really, really was enjoyable. And I really do like your podcast and I recommend it to anybody. So, Matt, how did you get into this? I mean, what is your degree in?
0: I do have a degree uh, with a double major. I have uh, history and uh, communication arts, radio, TV, and film focus. And uh, I've always been a history nerd, loved since I was a kid. And so that's where that love just comes from. And then, um, I spent about 25 years working in uh the internet industry. Um, so just media and uh website development, things like that. And so podcasts just kind of flowed from both of the, all the all those things from the technology to the history. And uh there wasn't something there wasn't a podcast like the Explorers podcast when I started doing it six years ago. So that's why I, I kind of dove into it because it was just a subject that I really loved. And, uh, I just figured out how to do it and, and it was great. Yeah, I
1: agree. It is great. Uh, I, I really, really do enjoy what you do. Your, uh, your writing style and your narration are excellent. I was a science person. People think when they listen to my podcast that I was a history, uh, major or, uh, and they're always surprised like, Hey, you didn't know that. What kind of history guy are you? Or, um, my, my wife and I did a, a movie review a, few, a couple of months ago and someone went on iTunes or Spotify and left a comment And said, you know, how could you be an English teacher and and not not have ever watched? You know, I think it was Sunset Boulevard. How could you have never seen this movie? And I'm like, I'm not. You know, you you can't respond to those comments. But I'm not an English teacher. I'm not a history teacher. I was a science geek, and uh, I just kind of stumbled into this. You know,
0: yeah. One of the things people ask me is is about narrating and how do you do a solo podcast? And you know, I do write, I do script things out, but. I also tell people that my practice came from telling stories to my son growing up uh, every almost every night, you know, we would just make up stories and just kind of having a free flow of information of just kind of just making up things as we went. And I learned how to entertain them. But even more important probably was I have, I played D&D, been the DM for like 35 years with my friends, my same group of friends that I started with back in the eighties. and you learn to be a storyteller, and um, that's what I always tell people: is try to be a storyteller. You know, understand your narrative, and uh, you know those peaks and valleys that need to come to tell a story. And uh, and and I and that's how I learned how to to I think be a narrator and to, to talk like this that I do.
1: Yeah, I, I was very quiet growing up, and uh, for me to talk out loud or read out loud is very awkward for me. Uh, things are very clear in my brain, but I'm always lacking for the right words, you know, but the way I got into it is uh, kind of interesting is that I was taking, uh, I was hired as an earth science teacher back in 1990, 91 school year, uh, at the school Chatham high school that I taught in for 30 years. And for the first three years I did earth science, but at the end of my first year, there was a really, really bad recession. And they told me that, uh, the physics teacher was retiring. They offered him early retirement. The state had an incentive. And they said, if you get your physics certification, you can keep your job. If not, you got to go. And there were no jobs out there because everybody, everybody was being laid off left and right. I was just a few credits shy of, I think I was five or six credits shy of my physics certification. Back then, you needed nothing. I mean, you needed 15 credits in physics. And I had taken physics one and two, which gave me 10 credits right there. So um, there was a one-credit course at RPI. That's the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is probably about 15 minutes from my house. And I signed up for it, and I went, and these three physics teachers are teaching it. And the one guy pulls out a copy of this book called The Straight Dope by a guy named Cecil Adams. And he used to, it was a column in one of the newspapers. And, and the, it was kind of like, I forget what the slogan was, but kind of like, you can ask him anything, and he'll know the answer. So, uh, But the teacher said, just keep a copy of this book by your desk. If you have five minutes left in class, just pick it up, turn to any page, and share a story with your students, and they'll love it. So I went and got a copy of the book, and I started sharing the stories with my students. And I was shocked. They, they really liked them. They, in fact, they liked that better than what I was teaching, you know. And they kept stealing the book. I don't know how many copies of that book I, I uh, you know, purchased over, over the first five, six years. So I just started collecting these stories, realizing, you know, they were of interest to the students. And uh, it just kind of went from there. And then when it came time to do a website, it's like, oh, what can I put in there? Well, I know all these crazy stories, and then developed into the podcast, and here we are, you know. So let's move on to some briefer stories that I call footnotes history. And uh, these are tidbits on which I basically do no further research. There's really not much to be done on them. So we're just going to read them word for word as they appeared in print many decades ago. So Matt, you ready to go? I am ready. Okay, I'll read the first one. And our first story originally appeared on page 22 of the March 15, 1927 issue of the Hartford Current. And it's titled Fly Swatters Aid Women to Regain Girlish Figures, Springfield, Massachusetts, march 24th associated press there's a big run on fly swatters in local stores but not for swatting flies this time they are swatting women who in their closer privacy of their boudoirs apply the little nemesis of the fly to their fatted parts to obtain a perfect figure a fly swatter vogue according to experts of style and fashion bids fair to become springfield womanhood's gift to the nation A few swats here and there, now and then bring those parts prone to bulge down to the most pleasing proportions. And it should be borne in mind that this new type of swatting is not a hit and miss system, but a real art. It must be done just hard enough to bring the blood to the surface, but not hard enough to cause the tender fat to bruise, which it will do very easily. The principle of swatting rests upon scientific facts. Blood breaks up and carries fatty particles through the veins and arteries. So care should be exercised in selecting the swatter to make sure it has a firmly constructed handle and an extremely flexible rubber that, with the slightest effort of the hand, can produce a good-sized sting and cause the fat to float away. I have to say, history is just filled with quack, medicines, diets, weight loss, uh, and this I think was one of them. Absolutely. This is just silly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, now the interesting thing is uh, Springfield is not too far from where I live. I live pretty close to the Massachusetts border. Maybe it's about an hour and 15 minutes away from here on the highway. And I tried to look in the local, more local newspapers, particularly one around Springfield. And the story doesn't exist there. It's in all the national papers. It was picked up you know, by the uh, news feeds, uh, by the news wires, but uh, I couldn't find it in a paper there. But of course, not all papers are scanned in, so that might be the problem there. Or it
0: may be they may be you know a little loose with the facts here. You know, maybe they just uh, uh, want to pretend they never printed that, <laughs> so they they just don't they just hide it and pretend it never happened.
1: Yeah, uh, when I saw it though, I'm like, this is a cute story, you know. So Matt, why don't you read the next one?
0: This story originally appeared on page one of the June 27th, 1935 issue of the Wahoo Democrat in Wahoo, Nebraska. The title is Cake Still Good After 35 Years. Imagine eating a piece of cake 35 years old and finding it is still tasty and delicious. That was the experience of a family group at the home of Postmaster Frederica Weber Friday evening when she cut her wedding cake in honor of her anniversary. The cake had been brought out at intervals since it first adorned the wedding table of more than a third of a century ago, and each time it was as sumptuous as the day it was baked. Yes, it is a fruitcake. To date, we haven't been informed definitely as to the preservative used, so your guess is as good as ours. Present for the cake cutting Friday were Mr. and Mrs. Oliver Adams and daughter Joan of Lincoln and Mr. and Mrs. Carl Weber City. And uh, just as a side note there, it just says City, which I believe means Omaha.
1: Yeah, that's how I interpreted it also. Uh, it turns out that it's not very far away, so uh, it probably is correct. Um, now, did you do that when you got married? Did you save
0: the cake? We did save a piece, uh, just a couple pieces, and we had it the following year, but that was it. So just one year. It was perfectly good. Yeah, we just put it in the freezer and pulled it out. So uh, it was fine. Oddly, my wife did the same thing. She never told me
1: uh, she just put it in the freezer and we had it a year later. It was awful. It, w- it was really, really bad. <laughs> that
0: I don't, that that I didn't experience. So we had a good one. So it's 14 years
1: ago now, but uh, I want to say it was just totally stale, you know? So um, as a little side note, I did some checking on the price of slices of cake. And this is only because I sometimes watch the British version of the Antiques Roadshow uh, while I'm eating lunch. And every once in a while, a piece of some royal cake Someone has a slice and they want to know what the value of it is. I never realized that people did this. They went to these royal weddings and saved the cake forever. So I just wrote down a few of them. Queen Victoria, uh, her wedding was in 1840, and it was a fruitcake. In fact, most of these are fruitcakes. A a slice sold in 2016 for 1,500 pounds, which is about uh, $1,875 today. Queen Elizabeth, when she married Prince Philip in 1947, a slice sold in 2015 for 500 pounds, which was around $625, again, a fruit cake. And uh, Wallace Simpson married the Duke of Windsor's a very famous case, uh, in 1937. And it sold for $29,900 in 1998. Can you imagine? That's great. Yeah, it's actually the most expensive slice of cake
0: ever. This isn't cake, but uh, you talked about the Shackleton uh, series earlier and i believe that uh some biscuits which are crackers here we you know in the united states we call crackers but in england they call them biscuits some biscuits uh from shackleton's one of shackleton's expedition sold at uh, at auction for several thousand dollars if i remember right <laughs> I, I knew they had recovered the biscuits. i didn't realize they had sold them at some point i think i think they were saved by one of the they were from one of the uh people on the expedition, had saved them. So, yeah, I have to say, I don't know if you felt the same,
1: but after listening to your story and then very shortly after that, I woke up one morning to see in the news that uh, they had found the endurance. That was really amazing. And to see how intact it was, that
0: was, that was wild. That was to me, when I saw the, the video of it, that was amazing because yeah, like you said, it was in beautiful condition you know, considering it's been there for a hundred plus years. And it was just, yeah, I was amazed at how great it looked. I, I never, ever imagined they'd, they'd find it like that. You know, you, you know, you
1: think, uh, other ships with there's, you know, especially cause it was a wooden ship, you know, it, was, it wasn't, uh, you know, made of of cast iron or steel. And, uh, usually the wooden ships, you know, basically, you know, nature takes over and they just eaten away, you know?
0: Yeah, I think it was because of the, the cold basically preserved it, um, uh, because of the, um, the temperatures as opposed to if you would have had something in, you know, if you're in the tropics or whatever, a wooden ship will rot away in, in, in moments <laughs> is some it's so hard on them. But I think in that cold, it managed to survive. Um, so, so intact.
1: Yeah. Uh, and some people were talking online, well, they should raise the ship up, but I don't think people realize how hard it was them to even get down there. Um, Apparently, uh, you know, the ice just, you know, the ice moves around and uh, it was very dangerous, just as I wouldn't say as dangerous. As it was when Shackleton went years ago, but it was a mission. Uh, I think they actually lost a submersible for a while while they were doing it. And, uh, you know, so the chance of ever pulling it up is probably, I wouldn't say zilch, but it's pretty low.
0: Yeah. And, and frankly, once you start messing with something like that, it starts falling apart. So you don't want to, they don't want to do that. Right. So the next story I have for you uh, was printed on page
1: 20 of the February 20th, 1937 publication of the Los Angeles Times, and it's titled Fall on Ice Starts Blazing His Pants. <laughs> Ellensburg, Washington, February 19th, Associated Press. Joseph Trainer of the Ellensburg Normal School faculty fell on ice without a match on his person and came up a fire today. After smothering the flames with shot up from his hip pocket, Trainer discovered two celluloid combs he carried there had vanished completely. Friction caused by the fall apparently ignited the combs. Trainer sustained a painful but not serious burn. Now, do you know anything about this serious celluloid?
0: No, I do not. I mean, I know a little bit, just related to film and just you know that,
1: but really not much. And of course, I'm sure you know that in the old days, uh, the, the heat of the bulb. Would ignite the film because celluloid was quite flammable.
0: I've seen, I've seen it. I've uh, been in a theater where it's melted, but never on fire. Yeah. Well, celluloid
1: was invented just a few miles from here in Albany, and uh, if you walk down Delaware Avenue, this is actually one of those uh, in your York State. We have these blue and orange plaques at the state issues, and it says, you know, first plastic uh, invented here or something like that. And it sits next to an abandoned Friendly's restaurant. And uh, what most people don't know, it actually wasn't invented in that exact spot, but there's a little strip mall there now, and originally that's where they made billiard balls. There was a, a factory that made billiard balls out of the celluloid. You know, billiards were very, very popular in the in the 1800s, and when they they were running out of ivory, so they had a contest for who could come up with a substitute for the ivory, and that's how celluloid got invented. So the balls were made of celluloid, and when they crashed into each other, occasionally, you know, because basically uh, like gunpowder, they would actually make a little loud explosion. I don't know if they'd actually break into pieces or, or burn up or anything, but there'd be this really, really loud noise and it would scare everybody in the pool halls. But, you know, of course, today they're using uh, modern plastics. It's not that big
0: of a deal. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I never knew that at all about the exploding stuff. And I'll be honest, I didn't know that they made, used ivory to make originally make billiard balls, which is kind of appalling now when you think about it, but... Um, that's great. Just exploding, <laughs> you know. Someone's just shooting a game of pool, and boom.
1: <laughs> I don't know if it was in my website or I mentioned the podcast at some point, but at some point I wrote about kind of a brief overview of the history of plastic, and uh, that's where that, that's where I first learned that story. And and to think it was almost in my backyard, you know, that it happened. Actually, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, but the place where they actually invented it, they now have a highway going over it. You know, they ripped down all those buildings and you know, so it doesn't exist anymore, but the plant where eventually they made the billiard balls years later, that's where the plaque stands.
0: Alrighty, I'm going to do the next story. And this was published on the front page of the merce Daily News Journal on November 12th, 1947. The title is Dr. Wins Bet, but Client Dies After Paying Off. Boston, November 12th, United Press. Ten years ago, a doctor told Alan Sharp of Boston he was suffering from heart disease and needed a rest. But Sharp couldn't see fit to take a rest. He said he was going to go on working until he reached retirement age. Of course, I'll never live that long, he said. I'd have to live until I was 65 to retire, and I'll never make it. I bet you $10 I'm dead before I'm 65. The doctor replied, I have a hunch you'll be all right, the doctor said. I'll take that bet. Sharp was 65 yesterday, and he retired from the Boston Edison Company. First thing I'm going to do is mail the doctor the $10, he told his wife. I'm going right out and do it now. $10 is approximately $125 today. On the way downtown, he dropped into the neighborhood drugstore to see his friend, Christopher Cerullo. This is my 65th birthday, and I'm still alive, he explained happily. The doctor won. I'm on my way to pay the bet. Sharp posted the letter in the mailbox in front of the drugstore and hurried home. He dashed up the three flights of stairs to his apartment and dropped dead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. I I should mention that when I first came across this story, um, I tried to find out if it was legit or not, and I couldn't find anything. I figured, well, you know, it's got to be in a Boston newspaper, but I couldn't find a match. Well, it turns out uh, the United Press had spelled his name wrong. They put an E at the end, you know, sharp with an E at the end, and it turns out uh, that wasn't correct. So once I took the E off, uh, it was in the Boston newspapers. Not only that, but I checked Ancestry, and it does confirm that the story is true.
0: Yeah, this was just, like you say, just kind of go, wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: Yeah, there's no shortage of quirky stories. You know, um, it depends on the newspaper. Uh, You you can't really find these things in New York Times. I mean, but there are certain papers, uh, you know, you can open to, uh, whether it be the Los Angeles Times, uh, the Akron Beacon Journal. There's some that I've just learned that they always had one of these little quirky stories every day, just kind of, you know, for reader interest. And uh, so once you learn that paper, I mean, what I, what I did for a few months, actually, right before I went to bed, I always keep a, a Chromebook next to my bed. And I would just turn to a different day's Akron Beacon Journal and just see if there's a story in there and then go to the next day and the next day and the next day. And I would just choose random years and random months and start on day one and work my way to the end of the month and then choose another year. And, and that's where I find them. It's, it's, uh, it's actually quite interesting. I think other people would find it boring, but I, I love finding these little nuggets, you know.
0: Yeah, um, I currently live in a in a smaller community, and the local paper uh, has their weekly, what they call like the, the the crime blotter or the you know the the nine one one blotter. And the best part is 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 half of them are not anything to do with crime. They're things like cows found wandering in the road, uh, you know, things like that. Just stuff that you just go. No real, no, no big city newspaper would even think about mentioning, you know, about the sheep that blocked the road and and, and stuff like that. But yeah, so you do get some some fascinating little stories, uh, especially when you get into these smaller communities. I was born in New York City. Uh, I only lived there till I was almost eight, so I
1: don't really consider that part of my life. But uh, when I try and research my family, you know, my family tree on Ancestry. It's very difficult because the New York City papers don't care about my family. You know, there's nothing mentioned them. Even when you pass on, the chance of you being picked up by the Daily News or the New York Times, they're not going to mention it. You know, they only put prominent people in there. So uh, it's very difficult to do. On the other hand, my wife, she was born in a very small town, raised on a farm. She was in 4-H. She won an award. You know, she's in the papers, you know, that wouldn't, you know, that never happened when I was growing up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Again, I live in Wisconsin. And so, you know, I've got relatives and, and stuff in small towns and we can go back and find great stories from the, from the local papers about things like that, exactly like that. Yeah.
1: I, I don't have the luck with my family. Although uh, very interestingly, me, uh, I did the DNA for Ancestry maybe about four or five years ago. And it came back and told me nothing. My wife's was very specific, but mine was because I'm Jewish. And Jews, of course, were being forced out of everywhere. It came back with a blob that covered almost all of Europe and half of you know half of Asia. I was like, "You told me less than I actually know. But maybe you know uh, a year goes by and I get a message on ancestry that some guy says, "I think I'm your third cousin once removed or something like that, and he's a lawyer out in Boston. And we got together with him, we met in Springfield. and uh, uh, I really enjoyed having lunch with him. But then he shared his ancestry with me. And all of a sudden it opened up an incredible chunk of my family. I never, ever knew about what was interesting. He had photographs of my great, great, great grandparents on my mother's side. I mean, I never even knew those people existed. And here he had photographs of them.
0: That's outstanding. I love that. And I know my, I have two of my brothers love to do the ancestry stuff and they're always, you know, whenever they learn things, they're always sharing things. And and it's just, it's just fun. I I mean, I love those shows, you know, what's the PBS show where they trace ancestries and things like that. Those are always fascinating, at least to me. Yeah, I I totally agree.
1: Okay, so I think I'm up next, right? This is the last one, I think. Yeah, one more. And in our last story for today, we have a story that was printed on page one of the June 26, 1956 issue of the Akron Beacon Journal. As I said, I get a lot of these from there. The headline is, Driver Grabs a Bird Hits New Police Car. A parakeet virtually demolished a spanking new police cruiser Monday. Not all by itself, of course, but the bird was the villain. Sergeant Darwin Weigel, in charge of police special equipment, was taking a new cruiser with only 16 miles, or 25.7 kilometers on it, out for a break and spin. At the bottom of the Talmadge Parkway Hill, another car rammed head-on into the cruiser and shoved it against a guard railing. It is not believed the cruiser is worth trying to fix. Driver of the other car, Hester H. Rhodes, 47, explained it this way. She was driving home, 1461 West Exchange Street, with Francie, a blue parakeet she had promised to care for some Talmadge friends who were going on vacation. At the bottom of the hill, the bird got out of its cage, and Ms. Rhodes tried to grab it. She lunged in the car, went out of control, hitting the cruiser. Weigel was treated at City Hospital for minor injuries. Ms. Rhodes drew a citation for driving left of center. And here's the good news. You ready for this? Francie wasn't hurt a bit. When questioned today, the bird wouldn't talk though. So Matt, have you ever owned a bird? No, I have not. Only had a couple dogs, a few dogs in my life. Yeah, well, I I have to say I'm the opposite. My parents owned a pet shop for 25 years and I owned an online pet business for a decade. But of course, when you do it online, there are no uh, animals involved. It was just supplies. But my parents did have a pet shop. So that was a lot of animals that, uh, that we saw over the years. Now, um, I do actually have a a cockatiel named Mo. She's actually out in the kitchen right now. Um, I don't know how old she is. She's probably about 12 years old. Uh, She's actually a really friendly, great bird. Uh, And the reason she's not in this room is when I try and talk, she just wants to talk with me, you know. Nice. But uh, she wasn't my bird originally. She was owned by uh, one of our students. Uh, She graduated, went off to college. I don't remember the whole story. I can't even remember her name. I'd have to look it up. Um, very nice kid uh, she went off to college and she was a freshman I believe and she had a heart or uh, a brain problem. I think it may have been a heart problem and sadly she died I think she was a freshman and then the mo, the bird has been passed on from you know owner to owner to owner and I'm the last one. I've had her probably five or six years or so I th- you know it's actually she's a nice pet. Uh, I would I would have never purchased one myself but I, I can't complain.
0: Yeah, I have, we, we had, uh, we've had three dogs and my son had uh, four rats over when he was younger. Oh, rats and are great, rats are, by the way. Rats are awesome. Yeah, rats are, are the f- most fun. The only problem is they don't last long. So you, quick, you quickly learn how to deal with death when uh, something dies after like two years. And that's pretty much what happened with all four of the rats. And to this day, he still talks about it. He's 20, 22 years old, my son. And he talks about missing his rats. You
1: know, we know that uh, you know rats. I mean, you think about it; their reputation is just dirty, filthy animals. But of course, what they're selling in pet shops are lab rats. They're they're clean. They're usually not the gray, ugly rats that you you know you find uh, you know in, in people's homes and on the streets and so on. But I, I think maybe at most they'll live five, six years or so. You know.
0: Yeah, generally the fancy rats, which like you say, you find in the store, are. Yeah. Three years is, is probably the most, uh, most rats will be. Um, but they are incredibly smart and mm-hmm. incredibly affectionate. And, and like I say, they are a great, um, pet for my son. He learned a lot just about, he cared for them and things like that. So we loved them and they were, they were great friends. Um, we had, as you said, they're not the gray, dirty things. We had a white one. We had a white and black one. We had a hairless one. Wow. So, which we called Harry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so. my parents sold a ton of them. Uh, Unfortunately, most of them were for feeding to, uh, you know, large snakes. But occasionally someone would come in and purchase one as a pet. And uh, I can't recall ever meeting anyone who said they didn't love having a rat as a pet. You know, they're very friendly, very affectionate, very intelligent, as I said. But as you said, they do die young. Uh, Usually cancer would get
0: them in the end. That was usually how most of them died. Most people had to get past the tails. Yeah, most that that's really bothered people the tails, but like I say, once they got to know them, and they were just so affectionate and so fun that uh, everyone loved them.
1: Yeah, I, I'd rather have a pet rat or even a pet mouse over a pet hamster. Honestly, hamsters can be quite nasty. They they have teeth and they will just grab into. You. The best ones are gerbils. Actually, uh, they look a little bit like rats, but they are the most friend. They have no fear of humans, so. Uh, and they don't smell either. They're very clean animals, nice. very easy to maintain. The only problem I had one when I was in college is they're nocturnal. And every night I try and sleep. And there's the gerbil running around on its little metal wheel. It would just wake me up out of dead sleep, you know. But uh they are very friendly pets. Anyway, so uh early in the podcast, I'd asked you what the most consumed natural resource on earth was, uh, besides
0: water, of course. Did you have any clue? I, I've been thinking about this and uh... And it's 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 hard actually. The the, the more you think about it, and uh, the one that I would go after would be coal. That's actually a very good guess, but of course, uh, coal is far less
1: used today than it was years ago. But of course, a lot of uh, power plants in this country still use
0: coal, and uh, and and overseas, like China, oh, and sure. places like that, there it's. It blots out the sky with their with the, with their their clouds. So that's what I that's, that was my my initial thought and that's I, I, I literally just trying to figure out what it would be next. I, I'm just not sure. Well,
1: I hate to disappoint you here. You're wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, honestly, I would have never guessed this one. The answer is sand. Uh, it turns out it's the largest mine resource on earth, and we use about 50 billion metric tons every year worldwide. But this is why I mentioned it. We're actually running out of sand on Earth. It's it's going to be a severe shortage very shortly. And I have to tell you, I have a degree in geology. I have a master's degree in geology. And I just, you know, there's sand everywhere. I mean, look at the deserts. You know, I couldn't believe that we're running out of sand. Um, you know, where is it on coastlines? You know, of course, in the desert, as I said, right around the corner from my house, there's a gravel pit. And honestly, in my area, there are gravel pits everywhere. So I just couldn't believe we're running out of sand, but it turns out you can't really use desert sand uh, for construction. It's uh, the wind actually smooths and rounds the grains, and it doesn't really lock in very well. So like cement doesn't stick to it well. If you're trying to compact it, it just kind of passes by each other. So you can't use all that sand in the desert. So you have to either get it from a beach or dredge it out of a river, or maybe an old you know, like the the gravel pits around me are glacial deposits, but They believe that will run out, you know, next 20, 30 years, or there'll be a real shortage of it. It turns out that the use of sand has tripled in the last 20 years. And that's mostly because of developing countries like uh, China and India. They're just building so much that they're using all this sand. So um, there are shortages looming for sand, which I never, ever thought was possible, mainly because I see them every winter going by on the roads and dropping, you know, know, the sand down just to give you traction for your cars, you know?
0: Yeah, it's very. Specialized, um, different sand does different stuff, um, and where you get it. And I know, like where I live, they've had a boom over the past decade. Well, kind of a boom and a and a drop with um, fracking sand. Um, we have the the sand in Wisconsin is outstanding for use in fracking, and it's and like you say, you need specific kinds of sand for specific things, and so. Um, You can't just like, like you say, just pull up a truck into the, into the desert and say, here's our sand. It just doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, they need very pure sand for
1: computer chips and glass and things like that. So uh, it really struck me being a geologist that there's a shortage of sand, you know, because I mean, how much of the world is covered in deserts? You know, you, you wouldn't think uh, it's the case. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'd like to thank Matt for agreeing to be part of the show. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was great. Uh, Now, his podcast, again, is the Explorers Podcast, and I really do highly recommend you check it out. And just like this podcast, you can find it on any of the streaming platforms, whatever your favorite one is. That could be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Uh, Matt's website is explorerspodcast.com, and you are on
0: Facebook and Twitter also. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Do you know the handles for those? or It's uh, Pound Explorers Pod for both. Excellent. And
1: if you like his podcast or mine, please let someone else know. Uh, we both do our best at podcast promotion, but honestly, there's nothing more genuine than the words that are coming from a listener. So Matt, is there anything else you want to add?
0: No, I think you hit it. You uh, you talked about the website and uh, you can see all the different Explorers. We're always growing. Um, we're up to about 100 and I think, 15, 17 episodes at this point. And, uh, some of them are just single episode things, you know, half an hour talk about a person. Some of them are up to 10 hours and that just depends on the the topic. Right. And, uh, the Shackleton one is the longest one you've ever done, I believe. Yeah. Hands down. And that tends to be more recent ones tend to be a little longer just because we have more information. We have, uh, journals and and things like that that give us, uh, uh, and books actually written by these people um, that give us a lot of information. We don't necessarily have that with, you know, Christopher Columbus or, or someone or Marco Polo. We have certain things that they've written, but it's generally uh, um, nothing compared to a more recent person.
1: Yeah. I have to say, I, I limit my research typically from about 1900 forward. I also tend to stop around when I was born in 1963, thinking, well, after that, I was born. Probably other people know these stories. So I kind of limit it to that. But uh, what I find is if I go before 1900, the problem is, A, the newspapers just reported anything. A lot of the stories are just made up. And, uh, and also, they're very hard to read. Uh, you know, I think they were still being handset mostly, and the stories are very short. It's just a lot easier to research stories uh, you know, from about 1900. There's just so much more written uh, than there was before that.
0: In some ways it makes it a little easier doing old stories because there's not that much to, to have to pull from <laughs> because, uh, things like with dealing with, you know, Shackleton or something, there are so many good resources. And at some point you just have to do it. Um, cause as you said, you know, we do these shows ourselves and, uh, I don't have Staff upon staff of people who can do all the, the research and everything. We have to do it ourselves, so it is a, a bit of a chore at times. And you've got a lot of places to pull from.
1: Yeah, um, I, I just did a story on Henry Ford. He uh, chartered a ship, and they were going to sail across the Atlantic and go to Europe and tell them, you know, you know, basically mediate an end to the war. Of course, it didn't work, um, and it was big headline news uh, at the time. But Because it was Henry Ford, I was just overwhelmed in information. As you said, at some point, you just got to do it. And normally, you know, I spend probably about a week doing research and a week putting the story together and recording it. And this one I started before we went to the Grand Canyon. So I was working on it for probably close to eight weeks. And even when I was doing it, I felt like, you know, I got to stop. I can't, you know, as I'm doing it, there's all these names I don't recognize. I need to go find out who this is and who that is. And the story just kept growing and growing and growing. And uh, I just had to, yeah, you know, at some point, just whittle it down there. I'd have a whole new book, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I totally get you. And it is, you know, you have to find what is your story. And, and uh, you know, at some point, you just have to stop because every new source, every new book brings you a little bit more information, but it's not necessarily, you're not learning that much more and that much insight. You just have to, go for it. Yeah,
1: I totally agree. Anyway, uh, I'd like to thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, more than welcome. So everyone, I hope you take care and tune in the next time.
0: Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes.